Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would clear our minds today of all the responsibilities that we have waiting for us, decisions we need to make, plans we have. Uh, the Father, we would just set those down right now and desire for your spirit to illuminate the word for our understanding and for our application. Father, I pray we not just be hearers but doers and that you would take this time to change our hearts for the better and conform us to the image of your glorious Son. Wonderful promises that you have made to do so. And I pray, Father, that our minds be open and ready to receive all that you have for us. That, Father, we would love one another more and more, and we would have a greater significance impressed upon us of just how good your word is. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your handout this morning, everybody does, right? Good, good. You have your, you pull this out in here, your notes for today. And if you notice, at the top left-hand corner, they're stapled. And we haven't had that before, right? But I just couldn't help myself, so had to, had to keep going, had to keep getting stuff in there. It's okay. And here's the thing. I had so many things that I wanted to hit on and cover and that I, I really saw was going on here. Forgive me if I end up reading the notes a lot today. I'll, I'll direct you to it when we do so that we'll all be on the same page about it, but just felt like there's a lot of things to grasp. So we have our notes in one hand. We have our Bibles in the other hand, right? Everybody have a Bible? Who doesn't have a Bible? Everybody's got one? You don't have a Bible? Let's get you one. In fact, we're going to give you a Ryrie Study Bible. Here you go. Maybe that'll be the goal one day. Would you care to pass that down? We'll go to offer Bibles and we won't have any to pass out. That'd be a good problem to have, right? All right, so notes in one hand, Bible in the other hand, Grace Bible Church pen in the other hand. All right, all three hands, we got something in there. It's good. Well, go ahead and take your Bibles. Let's turn open to Genesis 4. And for those of you that might not understand what it is that we're doing, we are in a long series, an extremely long series. And why? Because we ain't scared. That's why. We're in a long series because we want to be on the same page, starting at the very beginning where God started in creating and moving forward to an understanding of why Jesus is who he is, why he did what he did, and what the significance of what it means. And God has been communicating that picture all the way through. So on your notes, four foundational truths that we've covered so far that'll get everybody up to speed real quick. Number one, the Bible is God's self-revelation. What you hold in your hands is actually what God wants you to know about him. It is special. He wants you to grasp it. He wants you to get it. The next one, God is the eternal, always been, always will be, sovereign. He has the right to rule, creator, and all that he creates is good. All that he creates is good. 
It is all part and parcel of his nature. That is important. The reason is, is because you are able to exclude sin from the scenario of how God does things. He doesn't need sin to accomplish his purposes. It says here, man is a responsible agent. We all hate this one, right? Held to a moral standard. We're accountable. We're responsible. There are certain truths that have been put out there for you and I to know, and we will answer for them one day. But the fourth one, sin originates within a person, and that sin brings death, and death is separation. It is not cessation. Does that make sense? You don't cease to be. You're not just annihilated on the spot once you close your eyes to this life. That's important for you to know because there's a lot of Christians that believe that because the idea of wrath and fire and brimstone being on them in the lake of fire is just, they can't stand it. That's not politically correct today, and so we have a big problem with it going on. No, 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 no. Back the train up and see what the Bible has to say about the situation. Sin originates here. If we are responsible and accountable people, and this is where sin originates, then we need to find some way to do something about the problem that we have. Everybody got that? Okay, excellent. So, here's what I want us to know. Right underneath that line, every problem has a communication breakdown at its core. How many people here today got a problem? Now, everybody needs to raise their hand because sin is part of your problem, right? But I'm saved, but you sin. So we all got a sin problem. Do you realize that at the core of that problem is communication? Let's, let's do, let's do, in fact, we could just say this and pray and go home if we wanted to. What is the problem with sin? Somebody's like, please do that. You <laughs> preach so long. What is the main problem with sin? What's the enemy of God? No. No. Are you serious? I heard some of you said, did he really throw his grace Bible pen? (laughs) Yes, I did. Yes, I did. The enemy of God is unbelief. Oh, everybody do me a big favor. Write it down up here. In fact, humor me and just use all capitals, okay? Unbelief. It's funny because my U has come out like the University of Kentucky. Expect nothing less. See? Unbelief. Unbelief. That's the problem. When we sin as Christians who have already been redeemed, sin is because of unbelief. We just simply believed that something was better or greater than what God said, or we didn't believe that we needed to consult his word in order to get the answer for the problem. Here's the thing. God's word answers every problem that you have, either in specifics or in principle. I hate it when I get these arguments of, well, Jesus never spoke on that subject. Did he speak on it in principle? Did he? Are you guys sure? Yes. Okay. So that means that if God at least spoke on it in principle, he wants us to, everybody hold on, think. Oh, yeah. He wants us to think. We're going to have to do that today. Watch this. God is communicating. 
verse 4, or sorry, chapter 4, verse 1. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now, does everybody see, if you have the New American Standard Version, in that first verse there, you have some italics. Everybody see that? Does everybody know what the italics are for there in the passage? They're not necessarily in the original language, but it's been added there by the translators in order to help along the thought so that we could get it, okay? But here's what's interesting about this. Pull out your notes and take a look. In fact, it's not until the other side. I've got a lot of stuff in here that I've skipped over, but we're going to come back to it. So turn over on your second page. The first offspring of Eve is reflective of the promise made in Genesis 3.15. Everybody remember that? It'll be your offspring against her offspring. He will crush the head, but your offspring will bruise his heel. Everybody remember that? Okay. Now watch this, and this isn't me. This is Arnold Fruchtenbaum, okay? So if you're, you're familiar with his stuff, you know he's got pretty good stuff. Eve has assumed that Cain, her first child, was the promised God-man, that she quickly realized her mistake is evident at the birth of Cain's brother, whom she names Abel, meaning vanity. Now you say, what in the world does all that mean? Go back to verse 1 and take a look. Imagine reading this situation out, and you remove the italics. It says here, Here's what she says. I have gotten a man-child with the Lord. Now, immediately, all God's people said, that ain't right. Right? That's just weird. So what in the world does it possibly mean? It seems that Eve's thinking was is that the promise that the Lord had made was going to happen immediately. This is my offspring. He's the one who's going to take care of it. And wait a second. Here comes a second child. What? What is Abel? And it's interesting. Abel's name is means what? What did it say? Vanity. Which if you want a good picture of vanity, especially like Solomon uses it in uh, Ecclesiastes, it's the idea of on a cold day. Everybody here familiar with the cold day? I haven't experienced it here yet, praise God. But here we go, right? It's breathing out and you see your breath, and then it what? Gone. Vanity. Can you grab it? No. Can you hold on to it? No. That's the idea. It's a vapor. It's a mist gone. So notice, it doesn't seem that at the time of birth she had much significance for Abel if he's named Vanity because she expected that Cain was going to be the fulfillment of a promise that God had made. In fact, one of the translations that I read on this actually says, I have gotten a man-child, colon, Jehovah. That's it. That's it. Amazing what her mindset was in thinking this. Now, did she understand that God was going to bring salvation through her offspring? Yeah, just not this soon, not this soon. So notice what it says, verse 2. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. Now, why is this important? Here's the reason why. Because families at this time, starting out, even this first family, your family was your business, this is how you put food on the table. This is how you kept things going. This is how you survived and you lived. And that was how the family operated. So you've got one that is watching the cattle or the sheep. You've got another one that is taking care of vegetables, planting, harvesting a farmer, the whole deal like that. 
But now we move into verse 3. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. Stop there. Stop in the middle of the verse. Back up and let's read this slowly and let's watch what happens. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. This is the substance of his labors. This is what he's been involved in. This is a representation of how he makes a living and provides significance for everybody to get along. Everybody with me? Okay. But notice the next thing. Remember, observe, observe, observe. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. Pause for a second. Compare Cain and Abel. Besides the substance of the offering, what is the difference here? Anybody see what it is? What's that? Okay. The idea of bringing the first. What else? I mean, do we know that Cain didn't bring the first of his crops? No, we don't know that. Scripture doesn't tell us. What else do you see there? What else sticks out? What else pops out at you? What up? The idea that blood is involved in what Abel's bringing. What else? There's a couple other things that we need to see. Everybody look. Everybody's looking at me. There's nothing There's nothing up here. Trust me. Everybody look down. Okay. That would have been bad. The Lord didn't like potatoes, does he? So notice that. He, notice what it says. The first thing of their flock in their fat portions. Pause for a second. Why are they bringing an offering? Where in Scripture does it ever say for them to bring an offering this early on? Raise your hand. I'm just kidding. <laughs> God demonstrated when he gave him clothes. Wait, still not thunder, Kevin. <laughs> Remember back. Remember, God is a communicator. He wants people to know him. He is inviting people to know him. And he will do whatever it takes in order for people to get it. So remember, just as Adam and Eve had never seen anything die before, they never experienced fear, they never experienced shame, they never had to hide, get that. And all of a sudden, God takes these animals and kills them and rips their skins straight off of them. Now here, put this on. This is sufficient covering. That had to be humbling. Can you imagine seeing blood for the first time? It's amazing. Actually seeing blood for the first time. Now, something happened. And I'm just going to step out on a limb, and you go with me. If you don't agree with me, that's fine. But these are just conclusions that I've thought of. Something happened between that time when they're cast out of the garden and this time when their kids are bringing the offering. Notice we don't have Adam and Eve. We're not the subject here. Their kids are bringing the offering, which means that some sort of communication had to be passed on to them about what needed to happen. Abel's offering is so specific that you've got to sit here and go, wait a second, man. There had to have been details somewhere here in order to grasp on to this. Cain seems very 
general sacrifice. But God's not calling them to offer for no reason. Now, everybody think with me, Raiders of the Lost Ark, right? And we've seen what they've tried to do with the ark there, right? And on the top of the ark, you have what's called the mercy seat. Everybody remember what's on top of the mercy seat? Cherubim, right? Covered in gold. It's a piece of wood all made out of one, no parts or whatever. And it's covered with gold and their wings come together and touch. This is me personally. I believe that probably where they brought these offerings was to the entrance to the Garden of Eden because there was the flaming sword keeping them from the tree of life. But you also had what stationed there? Cherubim. It's probably where they ended up bringing this offering to. Now, what compels them to bring this? We see the details, so obviously some sort of communication had to go on. There's something significant that is happening. Now, you tell me which is more pleasing. Why would one be worthy of more than the other? I got surprises today. Are you glad about that? Mm, Yeah. Man, I got Tom Good last week. He gave me all kinds of grief throughout the week. And I told him, you're going to get it on Sunday. And when I squeaked that mouse, he jumped. And I haven't heard from him this week. You will. I told you I get you. You will. Here you go, God. I love you so much. And I'm pretty sure you'll be happy with this. I mean, who doesn't like sweet corn in Wisconsin, right? There we go. Had to balance out your diet right there. And I got you these because they're better for you, right? Sweet potatoes. We think God's response was. I mean, think about it. Is this all stuff that Cain had worked hard for? So he had some personal investment, didn't he? I mean, he's, this represents him in some way before the Lord. Why is it that this isn't acceptable? Bad attitude? Because Cain's just mean. Well, we'll look at that in a second. Okay, his heart might not have been into, I don't know. I know some cooks that if you said your heart's not in the vegetables you're bringing to me, they'd be offended, all right? There's no life. Didn't cost him. Well, he's going to have less of a salad because of this, his pride. What do you think Abel offered? I went to the store today. Turn around. I'm just kidding. He's cute. Aw, big letdown, wasn't it? You know, if I would have pulled something out with blood and guts, you all would have ran for the doors. This is Mortimer. I name him. The rat's name's Ray Ray. I name him. Whatever. I have problems. But in this situation, why is this acceptable? What makes this different from this? Both of them represent the occupation that's involved. I mean, both of them, if you cut them open, they give something. But what is the significance? What's the problem? What is it? Do we know? Blood. 
This has been debated with people for years. We don't know why God didn't accept Cain's sacrifice. We're not for sure of it. What? What picture is God painting? Sin costs. It costs. And if God is trying to communicate, he is trying to bring something to the forefront to impress upon us in such a way that we will not forget it. He is the top-notch illustrator of truth. Now, with that in mind, turn back over to the front of your notes here. What's that? You can't get blood out of a turnip. Words of wisdom from Tom Janney this morning. You better be lucky the sheep doesn't squeak. If you would, look at the top there. God has communicated his standard in the excellent word, atonement. This is a vital, vital concept for us to get, atonement. This is what God is doing early on. This is his solution to sin. The problem is what? Sin is always the problem. Adam's solution was to hide and then hide some more. Hiding is never the solution to sin. If you have sin and you hide, you can guarantee one thing. It's going to get worse. Period. It never gets better. It never gets solved. It never gets taken care of. Never. It says here, sin must be dealt with accordingly in the direction of the one offended by it. Remember, the one who sets the standard in this situation is God himself. Yahweh determines truth. All of it is according to his standard, regardless if we believe it or not. What we believe does not change the truth of reality. That's important to understand. So we either believe in concert with Yahweh's revealed truth, or we believe something that is apart from truth. Anybody know what that's called? There's lots of words for it. A lie? What else? A mirage? What else? A facade? What else? What is it called when you believe something that's ultimately not true? Deluded. (laughs) We got to get through one sermon without politics and Democrats and Republicans being brought up. Okay, back to spiritual things. So notice this, Yahweh... Though offended, who's the one who's been offended here? Yahweh. This is important for us to understand. God is offended by the actions that have taken place in all of the situation. Now remember, we're not not pulling apart Cain and Abel yet. We're talking about the Adam and Eve thing. He says here, he shows how to sufficiently handle sin by bringing forth the blood of two animals. Sin requires atonement. Where there is no atonement, there is no forgiveness of sin. This is important to understand. Blood is what is demanded. Now you say, why blood? Why, why, of all the things that God could have chosen, why is it that blood would have had to have been the situation? Skip down that little section there and look at the next one. Atonement is always by blood. The blood is the life. Take your Bible. Move Mortimer here a little bit. Take your Bible and turn with me to Leviticus 17. Put your finger here and just turn over for a second. See, this is the reason why we should spend some significant time with a pen and paper going through books like Leviticus and Numbers. 
because you figure out a lot of what God was already doing previously. Remember, as the Bible moves forward, it's a progressive revelation. So as you progress, you're just finding out more and more truth that's already a reality in the situation. Everybody with me? Yes? Who fell asleep? Okay, all of you. All right. Chapter 17, verse 11. Look what it says. Leviticus 17, verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the what? Blood. And I have given it to you on the altar to make what? Atonement for your souls. For, here's an explanation, it is the blood by reason of thee that makes atonement. Now think about this for a second. Anybody lied this morning? Did you lie to your kids to get them here? If you don't get in the car now, we're going to miss all the free cotton candy they hand out before church. Did you lie to them to get them here? No, you didn't have to. That's good. Anybody thought something wrong this morning? Who drove? We're all guilty. There we go. But in doing so, in doing so, what requires blood? How much sin? Lots of sin? A little bit of sin? How much sin? One sin. One sin demands the ending of your life. That's how seriously God took it. That's how seriously God wants to communicate to us the seriousness of sin. Do you get that? God is serious about communicating the seriousness of sin. Everybody with me? So whenever we're, oh, well, it's no big deal. Nobody's going to care. God cares. God cares deeply. And there will be a payment that needs to be made for it. It costs somebody something somewhere. That's important to understand. We often live our lives like it's a credit card. Just slide it on through, no big deal. And if it's out of sight, out of mind. We never look at the paper statement. You never have to deal with the end results. That is delusion. It is a facade. It is a garbage way of thinking about truth. So if the life is in the blood, this whole idea of blood being involved is absolutely significant. Now, if you look at the middle of page one of your notes, there are three points that God makes about the nature of atonement. Think about Adam and Eve, the animals dying in front of them, the fact that they are having to be clothed by what God did. Number one, it's substitution. Something living dies in place of the guilty party. Now, who should have died in Adam and Eve's situation? Adam and Eve. It was probably an amazing act of God's grace when he passed over them and slaughtered two animals in front of them. Did they want to see that? No. Had they ever seen it before? No. Did it probably scare them to death? Absolutely. But you know what they could say? Thank you, Lord, for not doing that to me. Because that's what they deserve. So substitution, something else was in place there. The next one? Good word, propitiation. Try saying that five times fast. Propitiate, don't anybody do that. Propitiation. This offering satisfies the demands of a holy God. Now let's squelch something real quick so that we don't misconstrue it, okay? This is Grace Bible Church, and we like talking about grace, and I'm a big fan of grace. But get this. God is not a lenient God. Does everybody understand that? Grace is not, oh, well, we'll let you go this time. 
That doesn't work in life. That's called foolishness. In fact, that's the way that you end up in bankruptcy. That's the way that you end up bankrupting a country. That's the way that you end up morally bankrupting yourself is by just letting things go. If you constantly let things go with your kids, you think they'll ever learn anything about standards and expectations? No. When we talk about God being satisfied and the grace that he gives in passing over this, God still had to be satisfied. God didn't say, well, you've sinned, and I just choose to be dissatisfied with this situation so we can move on. He would stop being God because he would compromise his holiness. And here's the interesting thing. You couldn't trust a word he said. Everything that came out of God's mouth after that moment, he said, yeah, well, that's what you're saying, but that's not what you mean. You ever made that mistake as parents? If you do that again, you're going to... And what are they thinking? Whatever. What are you going to say? That's why they call it the wrath of God. That's why they call it the wrath of Jeremy, right? That's why they call it the wrath of Steve, the wrath of Pastor Steve, right? It's because there is a situation that has to be taken care of, and if you let that person go and not give them what they deserve, it will cost you somewhere. This cost God. This is so important to understand. God took on the brunt of the responsibility in it and was still able to be just in taking care of the sin problem. He didn't compromise who he was. Very important. But he still got the job taken care of. Propitiation, it's the idea of satisfaction. God is now satisfied that the problem's been taken care of. Forgiveness. The debt has been met and is no longer an issue. Free to go. Set free, let go, no longer responsible. When we sin as Christians and we confess it to the Lord, and we know that we're wrong, but we've confessed, God, I'm wrong, you're right, I'm so, so sorry. Number one, don't ever make the, I promise not to do it again. Okay, you're not three. Don't do that. Because you will do it again and you'll do it again in spades. Praise God for his grace. But a good thing to say is, Thank you that you've now restored fellowship with me and that you forgive me completely. Let me tell you this. Any guilt that you have that comes back up from those sins is not from God. Why? Because God forgave it. Does everybody get that? Some of us are so drugged down by guilt. We're weighed down to the ground. We don't feel like we can move. We don't feel like we can do anything worthy for Christ whatsoever. That is not from God. If you've confessed it before him and done what the scripture asked for, what else is he wanting there? Nothing. He wants you to live the new life and walk in obedience with Christ. He doesn't want you so burdened down by sin that you can't hardly move. And you get that sinking feeling constantly when you think about doing something great for the Lord. It's not what he wants. So when we talk about the idea of blood atonement, we're talking about that there's also complete forgiveness that is given. Everybody with me? Yes? Okay. So now, here's one thing we need to understand. Hebrews tells us clearly, the blood of bulls and goats will never take away sin. But this is what Yahweh is requiring because he is communicating. He's painting a picture. And so here's what you have. You have Cain's offering. You have Abel's offering, in fact. There we go. 
Abel's offering. Here they are, Lord, offered to you. We're both coming because you've obviously communicated in some way, either directly or through the parents, that this is what needs to happen. But the problem we know that's going on right now is sin. The situation that we need to move forward in is the idea of forgiveness. Why would God not be pleased? Everybody take a look. Chapter 4, verse 4. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, verse 5, but for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Now pay close attention here. Look what happens. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. Regard. The idea of the thumbs up, the stamp of approval, this is good. This was great. Thank you, Abel, for bringing this. God is well pleased. Cain, I don't know. We think and try again. That's the beautiful thing about it. It was really a try again situation. It wasn't an eh, like a fire. Aren't you glad? Now, here's the amazing thing God accepts this, He doesn't accept this. Notice Cain's reaction. Read it carefully. Cain became not just angry, very angry. You ever saw somebody that's very angry? Like you can tell because the veins in the neck are present. Very angry. You can see the sweat coming out of the pores on the forehead. Very angry. You ever known somebody's very angry? Man, there are people who live their lives like that. But notice, he's very angry and his countenance fell. What does that mean, his countenance fell? Anybody know? What's it mean for your countenance to fall? Dejected, deflated. His whole just being just. and he just, it, get this, it emotionally unsettled him. He was tore up. He was mad. He was angry. Now, hold it a second. Before we, because we were familiar with this story, and that, that, the familiarity kind of ruins it. But think along with me real quick. Why is he so mad? Well, don't, don't, don't say that, because you'll answer it. Why should he be mad? I mean, he brought his life's work. This is a representation of what I do, God, to make things work. And is this not, is this not, why is this not acceptable to you? Well, Cain, I'm not accepting this. (sighs) Why? Pride? Um, Unbelief? But, But my question is, is who should he be mad at? Himself, Why? Because he knew what was right, get this, and he didn't do it. Think for a second, man, because Cain's not any different from you and me. He knew what was right, and he did what he wanted to do. Isn't that interesting about sin? It's one thing for a sin to be a mistake because you didn't know We usually pray, God, forgive me for the things I didn't know I messed up on today, right? We pray for that because we know there's something. Why? Because we know us and we know we're messing up all over the place. But it's bad. God, forgive me 
For not just the things I did, but I knowingly did them wrong, even though I'm ultra familiar with your word. Isn't that amazing? God, I know what your expectation is, but I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to. And somehow we think that that makes us a symbol of freedom in this world. I'm going to cast off the restraints that God has put on me, and I'm instead going to, going to just go out there and be my own person and look at me. Has anybody ever been anything of any significance apart from God? Never. Never. It may have mattered in this world, but I guarantee you it never mattered in eternity. And that's where it counts. So notice, he is very angry. He is grieved. He is upset. He is gritting his teeth. What's that? He's livid. There you go. Good words. Man, anything we can bring like that, good words. So now, here's what we want to do. Take your Bible. Put your finger here. Doing a lot of flipping today. That's why you have two pages of notes. Turn to Hebrews 11. Look at verse 4. And it's a really good safe uh, bet that if you ever want a little bit more information about what's going on in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, you just turn to Hebrews 11 and it explains a whole bunch to you. The Bible is the best commentary on itself. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. I really like the sound of pages rustling. It's great. I'm glad everybody's bringing their Bible. It's good. By faith. By what? Faith. Faith. And we're going to talk about what faith is here in just a second, but let's, let's go ahead and look. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. Stop. Get your categories out. This is just better. Split it right here. This is just better. Now think about it. This is the Holy Spirit divinely revealing in someone in the New Testament times to write it down. This is just a better sacrifice. Now let's find it out. Because how did he offer it? By what? Faith. faith. Essential component. By faith, offer, uh, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Pay attention, man. This is interesting stuff. God testifying about his gifts and through what? Faith. Though he is dead, he still speaks. Hold it. Abel didn't live long after he gave this sacrifice here. We know the story, right? But pay attention to what the author of Hebrews is revealing to us. Through this testimony, Abel was now seen as righteous. He offered it by faith. It brings the word faith up twice in the situation. He says here the testimony that he was righteous. God testifying about his gifts, about his offering. And what did he testify about it? Look what it says here. And through faith, though he is dead, it still speaks. It still testifies. It's still a witness. It's still got something to say. Now, by faith, he offered this. By faith is how it was handled. What is 
faith, belief. Get this, don't miss this because people mess it up all the time. Faith is believing what God has said. If you want to know what a friend of God is, it's faith. If you want to know what an enemy of God is, it is unbelief because unbelief participates in godlessness. It is knowing what God has said and saying, you know what? He said it, but I don't care. That's unbelief. You may even know within your being that it's true, but because of the depravity of sin that we have, it propels us to walk away from that truth, from that standard. Everybody, does this resonate with everybody? I mean, this is us daily life every day. I know it's a little bit more philosophical, but go with me on it. This happens to us every day, and the choice is set before us. Will you believe what God has said and act accordingly, or will you believe what God has said and just kind of do it, kind of come half-heartedly, kind of just offer the little bit of what you think he might like? You ever heard somebody say, well, I don't think God would do that. Anybody ever heard that? It makes you want to go, right? Where is that in Scripture? Where did you find that? How did you come to that conclusion? And what's interesting is, is when you call somebody on something, when they believe it's not biblical, they don't know. That's just how they think God ought to work or God ought to act or that God should protect the brewers. I mean, I don't know. You know, people have got weird things that they think God does. And what you find is a lot of them are not biblical. They're just substitutes for truth. They're just suppressions of truth. And there are people who go their whole life not really knowing who God is because they think they know what he's like. Dangerous, dangerous, dangerous. So now going back to Genesis, notice that Abel offers his by faith. In fact, let's do this. I'm sorry, I got you guys going everywhere. Good thing you got three hands today. Also pull out your notes. Page two, where it says Genesis 4, 4b through 7. There's been much debate as to why Abel's offering was acceptable and Cain's was not. We find two reasons. Number one, Abel's offering was in keeping with God's pattern for atonement. Remember, God is a communicator. He wants people to know him, and if sin separates people from him, he wants them to know how to be made right with him. Minosa says, God is communicating. Death is the price for sin, and blood or life is the only means of sufficient payment. Number two, what we just saw in Hebrews, tells us that Abel submitted his offering by faith. This shows us his conviction about the offering. Faith is believing what God has said is true. So God had obviously communicated to them, this is how you are to approach me, and this is what you are to offer because of your sin. This is the way that you atone for these things to maintain a right fellowship with me. Now, we know that Abel took it seriously because he brought the firstlings and the fat portions. You read Leviticus chapter 3? Verses 16 and 17, and you have a little line in there that I've always thought is humorous. The fat belongs to the Lord, right? That'll get you across in your Weight Watchers group. The fat belongs to the Lord. Let's move forward in dieting, right? Praise God. That is a sweet-smelling aroma to him. It is something that is pleasing to him that when people bring offerings, and it takes time to cut up and divide up an animal the way that Yahweh has demanded it, it causes a person to think about what's taking place. So in doing so, 
going by faith, doing what God has said, we now have a dejected, disgruntled, rejected sacrifice. And Cain is taking it personally. Moving on. Verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well. Everybody see that word if? If. Condition. There's a contingency in play here. If you do well. Will not your countenance be lifted up? Stop there. Cain, you know what's right. What are you doing? What's wrong with you, boy? Is that God? Amazingly, no. Notice that God's not grabbing anybody by the ear and dragging them over to the corner. Okay? Notice that God didn't take his belt off. Everybody see this? Notice that Cain didn't get grounded for months on end. He wasn't banished to his room. It wasn't no ice cream for the rest of your life. How does God approach Cain? What's that? With reasoning. But when you read through this, does everybody sense the presence of God in this? I mean, think about what's going on here. Cain is upset, he's mad. He's not mad at himself, which he should be. He's mad at his brother. He's mad that his brother was accepted and he was not. And he's rolling through in his mind how to deal with this and what he deserves and where I knew I wouldn't get caught, I'd just do this. I mean, crazy stuff's going through his head. And isn't it interesting that Yahweh approaches him like a father and comes up beside him and asks him, very plain and pertinent questions. Look what he says. Why are you angry? Why be so grieved? Why be so upset in this situation? Because who's to blame? Cain. Why are you upset for something that you didn't do? How about the next one? Look what it says. Why is your countenance fallen? Why are you looking so down? Why are you letting your balloon be deflated in front of everybody? Why are you all hunched over and looking all weird now? Is his anger in vain? Does his anger have a purpose? Is he angry over righteous reasons? He's angry for selfish reasons. Somebody did better. One of the biggest mistakes we make in the Christian life is comparing ourselves with other people. The Christian life is never a race ran against our brothers and sisters. The Christian life is a race ran with Christ out ahead, and that's it. Those white lines on the side are there for a reason. That's because we don't need to be looking right or left, but forward. See, the problem is he got his eyes off of what God wanted in the situation. So why are you responding like this, Cain? What's the deal? Notice what he says. Contingency. If, if you do well, does Cain still have a chance? He does. Aren't you glad God gives chances? Notice like a good father. Man, this isn't good. This is on you. But if you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? 
If you just, oh man, get it. I'm getting ready to get saved, okay? I like sending it to you guys. Freaks you guys out. That's great. He's not saved. I'm getting ready to get there. Think about it. Think about it for just a second. If you would just do what I ask you to do, wouldn't your whole outlook on the present moment be different? Everybody see that? If you would just obey my word, my how things would change. And guess what, Cain? You have that opportunity. Does everybody see as a good father, he is painting a field of freedom for this man? Everybody see that? I mean, I almost picture like God inviting Cain, picking him up and putting him on his lap and trying to explain to him as a father would. But here's something interesting. And if you do not do well, if you choose not to obey my word, get this church, sin is crouching at the door. That word also means lurking. You ever known anybody that lurks? Right? Walmart, 3 o'clock in the morning? (laughs) Maybe. Sin is crouching at the door. And it's desire, it's longing is for you. In fact, here's something that's interesting. Everybody remember uh, Genesis 3.16 we looked at last week? Everybody turn back there if you don't remember. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. And your what? Desire will be for your husband. And remember, that wasn't like, hey, baby. That's not what that is. It is the idea to want to overthrow and take control of the situation. It's desire. It's want to manipulate you is waiting, crouching at the door, ready to snatch you out. But look what he says. Look what he says to Cain about this. But you must what? Master it. You must rule over it. In fact, in back in 3.16 when it says, but he will rule over you, exact same word. You must master it. You must take a hold of it and not let it drag you out. Not let sin whip you down. You need to deal with sin. It's waiting for you. It wants you. It wants to destroy you. Do you know that sin wants to destroy you? Do you know that Satan does not care about you? Do you know that everything within us wants to run away from truth? And this is why we need the word of God to knock us upside the head every once in a while and make us realize I'm living in a fantasy land because I'm living with decisions that are apart from getting closer to God. I'm living apart from the foundation that his word supplies, the pavement that it puts before my feet to walk on to get to the destination I need to be in. I'm trudging in the mud and wondering why it's so hard. Cain, it doesn't have to be like this. If you do well, if you just obey my word, won't it be different? Look what Cain does. Verse 8, Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field, which shows you that this is premeditated murder. First murder is taking place. First death took place, God brought it. First murder that takes place, Cain brings it. While they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. 
Then the Lord said to Cain, and isn't this reminiscent of what he said to Adam? Remember he said, where are you? Look what he says. Where's Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You can just hear like the smirk in his voice, can't you? You can just hear the whole denial, denial, denial. But there's a problem involved. By faith, God testifies that Abel's offering was righteous, right? Because what does it contain? Blood, and blood is the what? Life. Pay attention to what goes on here. Look what he says. Where is your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's what? Is crying to me from the ground. Now, does blood cry? It does, obviously, doesn't it? Not like we understand. But notice, Abel's blood serves as a testimony. Did Abel deserve to die? Interestingly enough, he didn't. Why? Because God had approved him. He was accepted. In fact, Hebrews tells us he was righteous. He didn't deserve to die. But does his death stop his testimony of choosing to do the right thing? No, it doesn't. Get that. Your brother's blood cries to me from the ground. He says here, now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant, a fugitive, and a wanderer, a vagabond on the earth. God actually sets forward and curses Cain. And here's the reason. Cain did not have, or he didn't bother to think through the ramifications of his actions. We all know what this is like because suddenly at 27 years old, all of our parents got smarter, didn't they? All of a sudden, they knew what they were talking about. What they were saying never changed. They were saying the same stuff they were always saying. But notice the difference. There was something in us that just started believing them. Instead of operating in unbelief in that relationship, we started believing what they had to say. Everybody see the similarities here? Man, God sews this together great. He's crocheting some goodness right here. Okay? So notice verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you've driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden. And I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Now, isn't this ironic? He's now worried about losing his life because he is being cast out from the presence of the Lord and he is being removed from the family that he knows on the earth. He is now to wander around. Well, if somebody else finds me, they're going to kill me. Now pause for a second. Who else in the world would be out there? I mean, we got Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel. And we know from Genesis chapter 5, verse 4, that after Seth, they have many more kids, right? Everybody see this is a family problem? He's worried about family getting him. He's being removed from the ones that he would normally confide in, but family's going to get me, God. And look what it says here, verse 15. So the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. Now pause. Everybody see the grace here? Does Cain deserve to die? He does. Isn't that interesting? Cain deserves to die. 
Yahweh is full of grace. He says here, He'll be taken on him sevenfold, and the Lord appointed a sign for Cain, so that no one finding him would slay him. Now, does that mean that he had something weird put on his forehead? Or Some people actually depicted for a while that, that the Lord had him grow a horn. Was, dude, that is, that is weird, okay? That's probably not what happened. This word sign here means a pledge. It may be just the simple fact that God made a decree by his word that if you touch Cain, I will kill you and the retribution will be sevenfold upon you. It's pretty serious. It doesn't have to be he grew a horn or has some weird talisman or something weird like that. That's, that's all silliness. So now, verse 16, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, if, if you have a, the New American Standard, you might have a little number next to the word Nod. Does everybody see that? What does it say over there? means what? Wandering. Now you're like, well, wait a second. If he's a, a wandering, a vagabond, how in the world did he settle down in a place called Nod? He wasn't settled. He went to a region, but he wasn't settled in it. It's not like he was able to put down camp or anything like that. He was prone to be banished. That's the idea. Verse 17, Cain had relations with his wife and she conceived. Where in the world did she come from? It's a family business. Uh, I'm sorry, and I know that's weird, but it's true. It's true. And here's the reason why. And we, we, know that, we know that that is not biologically permissible now. We get that, and we get the heinousness of it. But at this time, sin had not progressively unveiled itself through the lineage of people. That's what made this possible to populate the earth in this way. Where did he find her? Maybe she came looking for him. I don't know. Maybe he took her before he left. We're not told. But one thing we know is he got himself a woman and she started having babies. That's what we know. I, I don't know that we need to be any more elementary than that, really, I just, just or, or more ex strain the point. I'm going to say something that's going to get me in trouble. Let's move on. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived. He gave birth to Enoch. Now, this isn't righteous, loving, I follow God, I'm gone, Enoch. That's not that guy, okay? Different line of people. And he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his son, now to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad became the father of Mahujael, and Mahujael became the father of Methushael, and Methushael became the father of Lamech. Anybody pregnant here need some names for your kids? Here you go, write them down, because you won't remember how to spell them, so just know, Genesis 4. Now here's an interesting thing, verse 19, Lamech took himself, how many wives? Hold it, hold it. Did we get away from the pattern that God established here? Okay? So notice what's happened. Lamech is taking on two wives. Does that walk away from the pattern that God has established? It does. What does this tell you about the lineage of Cain and the legacy that Cain is leaving? It's full of sin. It's full of evil. It is full of rebellion. It disregards everything that God says is right. It is a complete banishment of truth. Everybody see the significance that's all going on? I mean, Genesis 4 has got a lot in it. That's why I need three pages of notes. But look here. He took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who dwelled in the tents and have livestock. It's probably some breed of farmers that were out. His brother's name was Jubal. 
He was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. In other words, the generation of musical instruments here. Now, this doesn't mean that music is from Satan, okay? Don't everybody be sending me your questions about that, okay? That, that's not the situation. Only some of it is. Verse 22. As for Zilla, she also gave birth to Tubal-Cain, the forger of all implements of bronze and iron. In other words, he was skilled in metallurgy, which I think I'm saying that correctly. But the idea is, is weapons, tools. They started to become actually an industrious society at this time. Now, that's not what American history tells you, is it? American history tells you it all went down at the, Amer or the Industrial Revolution. Not according to the scriptures. We had awesome technology early on, not too far from the very beginning. So it says here, and the sister of Tubal came was Nama. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, and if you've noticed, if, if your Bible has this, it, it, it kind of indents it a little bit and puts it in more of like a, a set-apart form. Does everybody see that in your Bibles maybe? It's because it's written in a poetic style. Ada and Zillah, listen to my voice. You wives of Lamech, give heed to my speech. For I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, pause. Is Lamech familiar with his family history? Absolutely he is. Is he familiar with God's grace upon Cain in protecting him from murder? See, here's what makes this rebellion so drastic. It's not that he's ignorant of God. It's not that he's ignorant of God's word. It's that he knows God's word and he hates it. Everybody see how depraved we are. Everybody get this? So notice. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, let Lamech 77-fold. Now, you might say, well, what in the world does that mean? Isn't he just trying to protect himself? No. Number one, God is the one who pronounced the grace upon Cain, not Lamech. Everybody see that? Lamech is pronouncing this for himself, saying, this is what I deserve, and I killed this man, and I did so justly. But what it seems like he's doing is he's drawing attention to his notorious nature. It's almost like he's glorying in the fact that he's murdered somebody. Scary stuff. Does civilization look very hopeful here? Okay, now remember why this is significance. Or significance, significant. We are in the dispensation of conscience. When Adam and Eve ate of that tree, they now know good and evil. Their eyes have been opened. In fact, if you remember, the reason why they were thrown out of the Garden of Eden was because God said they've become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Before, they didn't know about evil. Now they do know it. And now they are to operate by what they understand to be right and wrong. They have a conscience. How's Cain's line doing? Terrible. Disgraceful. But look what happens next, verse 25. Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, for she said, God has appointed me another offspring to place in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. Verse 26. To Seth... To him also was born a, a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Now, very interesting phrase here. Look at this. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, here is what Moses is allowed to do at the end of this chapter. He is allowed to give us a glimpse of hope. Not everybody had thrown in the towel as far as standards of truth. Why? Because Seth set forward a lineage in his generation 
to where our legacy in his generation, where everybody was to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, when you deal with the idea of calling upon the name of the Lord in Scripture, it is for deliverance. It is for rescue out of a calamity or a situation. It is for actually what's called in Scripture salvation. But not salvation like you and I often think in our Western mindset of go to heaven when you die. This is talking about a physical salvation. When you read through the Psalms and David calls on God, rescue me, O Lord. It's the idea of being saved from a bad situation. Seth's generations were brought out calling upon, reverencing, being acceptable before God in this situation. Not denying, not rebelling, not hiding, not going away from truth. Not when confronted with the truth, refusing to obey the truth, but instead seeking to be steadfast. And when times got hard and you needed help, you called on the Lord for salvation. A pattern, a legacy of doing what is right. Now, I could have pulled a million applications out of all of this stuff that we looked at, but I wrote them down for you on the very last page. And I've given you a bunch of other scripture references if you want to look at some things there. But understand this, number one, and I plead with you today, and I encourage you to plead with me for this because I need it too. Obey God's word. What has God said? Do it. Period. Trust him. He knows what he's doing. Do it. If you disregard it, it will lead you to destruction disregarding God's word leads you to destruction. It is that cut and dry. Number two, our relationship with Yahweh has nothing to do with others. Keep your eyes on him. We are too busy comparing ourselves with how somebody else looks, how somebody else feels, what somebody else has, and we're so dissatisfied in this life. Let me encourage you, please, don't care about those worldly things. They don't matter a hill of beans before the Lord. Not a thing. All that matters is you focused on Christ, period. That's how your race is run. And I guarantee you this, when you take your eyes off of him, you slow down running the race. You will stumble and fall. The last one, anger is irrational when we have not followed his word. If we are angry or envious because somebody else is receiving the blessing and we're not, and we know good and well, that we're not obedient, and they are. Anger is the silliest emotion you could possibly have at that moment. It is completely irrational to the situation. Obeying him clears the conscience and leaves a solid testimony with joy. Now, here's an interesting thing, and you're probably glad. I don't have Superman's x-ray vision, so therefore I can't see where everybody is currently in your life with what your relationship with the Lord looks like. But here's one thing I do know. If you're not obeying him, you're not happy. I mean, that's just from the scripture, isn't it? If you're not obeying him, you are in a bad way. Now, don't everybody zip up your Bibles. What are y'all doing? I might want to go somewhere else. The spirit might lead me to revelation or something like that. We could be here another hour. In fact, I'm half tempted. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but here's what I do think is very important about this. In fact, let's do this real quick, just so it's not weird for everybody. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Trust me. I'm not going to throw anything at you. You're not going to get the corner tomato, okay, or the sheep. 
Close your eyes for just a second. Think about where you are in your life. And think about where you are in your life as compared to what you know, what you know God's Word says. And think about the extent of the divide between those two truths, where you are and what God has said. If you have the indwelling Holy Spirit, that divide is easily gapped or easily patched, I'm sorry, by one simple way, and that is obeying. God, through giving his Son, bridges the gap between sinners and salvation. So that's the first point that needs to be settled. Do I believe in Jesus Christ? If so, he's given you eternal life and he has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. But now it becomes a question of, how am I living my life in regard to the truth? And I want to tell you the same thing that God told Cain. If you will only do well, will you not be accepted? If we would only obey, if we would only do what God has said, stop rationalizing, Stop justifying, stop arguing, stop running, stop hiding. If we would just do what God says, would we not be thrust into a realm of joy that we couldn't even possibly comprehend? The Bible tells us yes, yes, and yes. Father, bless us today. We ask it, please. Convict our hearts where we are wrong. Correct our thinking where we've strayed. And may your word impress upon us, brand us with its truth so that we will no longer run from it, but simply offer, bring to you, obey what you have said, all that you have put forth according to your word, not according to how we want to do it. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.